right about now, it is midterm time. And, uh, you know, when I first made this series of studies, it was for students at the local church that I taught in Korea. And uh, so it was focused on their midterms. We were talking about the reality of them having midterms. They had exams whereby they had to show their mettle, be tested and show what they know. Uh, and we talked about all the problems that pop up with planning, right? Maybe you decide, I'm going to plan an all-nighter tonight. Or maybe you settle on, I'm going to study with a, a study group. A lot of people joining together and we're going to depend on that. Or maybe even you're making plans for a vacation after your midterms, right? Sort of a, a plan for you to relax. And life is good as you plan things out, as you pencil it out on your calendar. But then something happens. Maybe you can't stay awake for that all-nighter. Maybe the coffee just makes you tired. Uh, maybe the chief member of your study group that you were hoping to learn from, they get sick. They don't show up. And all that you were banking on, <laughs> now you got to bank on what's in between your ears, God forbid. Your plans for vacation, perhaps, are ruined by a hurricane. Now, obviously, this is falling flat because none of us are college students or even high school kids today. How about this one? In politics, there are midterms coming up. I'm sure that your mailbox, whether it be your email box or your physical mailbox, is being littered with political communications, whether it's phone, radio, internet, or even in person. I've had a couple visit my house. Exciting. I'm always a fan of, hey, local representative comes to your door. It's pretty amazing. And we, we have all this information from the crass attack ads run by political action committees and super PACs to even a more positive ad put out by the candidate themselves. And these are far and few between nowadays, these positive ads showing what they stand for. We've all been drowning in a mere teardrop of policy positions. Uh, ironic, right? I think that's Smokey Robinson, this idea that, uh, you know, you're going to be deluged within a teardrop of reality. Well, that's probably about where we are with politics today. Amidst the noise, the candidates still, however, do make various promises to carry out plans to protect freedoms, fix the economy, fight crime, etc. Yet even when the hoped-for candidate wins, we find that their plans are often frustrated to one degree or another. Sometimes the winner discovers that they were voted for not because people wanted them out, but, or not because people wanted them, but because they disliked the winner less. Uh, the hope and change, or the make America great again, or the build back better slogans often don't plan out according, don't pan out according to plan. Perhaps the will of the electorate shifts. Other issues blur their once real or imaginary mandates once they get elected. There's wars, diseases, and whatever it is, it makes a mess of their plans. This lack of ability to see our plans through isn't just the bane of students for all-nighters or politicians with their anticipations. It's part of the human condition. We must use the time and talent that we're given to be faithful with our plans, careful with our time, but you can never be sure with what will happen. 
This has led some people to say, of course, that the only thing certain in death is death and taxes, and humanity's plans, we know, of course, are easily frustrated. Things don't always turn out like we plan. Circumstances and our abilities limit us. Um, our family would take trips every year to St. George, and uh, one year we were in a hurry to get the girls to pack and get where we needed to go, and I promised them, if you pack your stuff and get in the van like yesterday, we'll go eat Chick-fil-A. Now, this was a pre-Chick-fil-A era in Las Vegas. We're all, you know, inundated with Chick-fil-A's now, and it's no big deal. But this is when Chick-fil-A, one, we had had it a couple times, and we're like, wow, it's really good. And two, they didn't have any. So that was a really good bait, right? And the kids, like, packed their stuff. Now, lo and behold, uh, I forgot something about St. George. Is they're on a different time zone, right? And they typically close things really early there. So we speed, we get to St. George. I'm excited, you know, I got what I wanted, that namely get in the van, let's go. Uh, and uh, we get there and St. George is closed. Now I had every good fatherly intention to hook my kids up with some Chick-fil-A, okay? Uh, but lo and behold, when we get there, it was, it was quite the downer. Like, I was even disappointed, right? I was like, oh, delectable delights of chicken won't be going down my throat. Now, we did end up getting a consolation prize of Carl's or something, but it was just such an illustration of well-set-out plans, true intentions, even the means to pay for it, which hasn't always been the easiest thing. But, uh, you know, that was all there. But our, our plans were frustrated. And isn't this so much like our plans in this world. Now, of course, today, I don't mean to speak to you about, uh, you know, the frustrations of food supply chains in the Phillips family life. Uh, I don't mean to talk to you about politics, right, how to be a better voter or a better student. I came to speak to you about how God's plan is not like our plans. Whether we're plans individually as one person, which personally I'm not a good planner, uh, or maybe even if it's corporately conceived, whether our plans are conceived of as by a group of people or by ourselves personally, even if it's by some of our greatest minds individually or corporately, those plans are frustrated. We have many plans because we're stuck in time and sometimes have to change our plans due to our nature as subject to the forces that are outside of us or maybe because of our own sinful choices, right? Our plans are frustrated and frustratable. So in order to address this theme, we're going to look at Shorter Catechism number 7 to examine God's plan. I apologize, there's no handouts today, but there's really big text on the board. And we'll see how big it is. <laughs> so let's read this responsively. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So we're looking at some pretty heavy topics today. Predestination, foreordination, election, God is sovereign, right? These are pretty heavy ideas. Now, according to the Catechism, God has one, a singular, eternal plan, which will never change. He's not subject to time or to events like we are. Now, it is true that the Catechism uses the language of decrees being plural, but I think this is just from the reality that when we are looking at the divine decree, whether it be in eternity past or 
what is to come, this is from our perspective. From our perspective, it appears to be decrees. And so this leads Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff, the great systematic theologian. Uh, he says this, God has one decree, one comprehensive plan, embracing all that comes to pass. Due to our weakness, we speak of decrees because it aids our understanding. And that's fine. It's fine for us to speak of that. But we need to understand that that's not how God operates. One word that's helpful for describing God in his decrees, of course, is the word sovereign. Interesting slip. I have her reigns on high. Uh, he reigns on high. Um, trying to be sensitive here, I suppose. Uh, no, he reigns on high. God is sovereign. He has the right to rule. Okay? Uh, he's God, and we're not. And so when we look in here and we say, what are the decrees of God? Decrees of God is his eternal purpose. We're going to look back, all the way back at Westminster Shorter Catechism one, number 1, right? It's about glorifying God. It's a theocentric view of reality, right? So it's his eternal purpose, right? Counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained. Whatever comes to pass, right? The, uh, uh, monotheism is writ big here, right? The distinction between the creator and the creation is written big here. Now, as we look at this, this idea of God being sovereign, we need to remind ourselves that we aren't. Unlike God, we don't create reality from scratch, okay? Despite how much we'd like to think we do. Our God is the sovereign God. He rules and controls all things for his own glory and your good, according to Romans 8, which we'll look at in a bit. And that expands all of created reality, all of time and space history, from the hair on your head to grand world events. God is the Lord of history. And so it could be said, as uh, OPC Church historian Charlie Dennison would say, history is what God does to us, right? History is what God does to us. Now, from the daily workings in the cosmos to the big events in the history, God is sovereign. So, for example, Matthew 10, 29 through 31, looking at from the smallest to the greatest, Matthew 10 passage, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, it's not just that God is a busybody or he's a micromanager, but that he cares. That he who made the heavens and the earth and all things therein and is the Lord of time and space history, uh, he cares for you. Not only is he through his providence holding all things together, but he cares about the hairs on your head, okay? We could expand our scope a little bigger. Isaiah 49, uh, 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there's no other. I am God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, 
the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Now, it's comforting to know that God has the wherewithal to carry out all his holy will. He's going to make his plan happen. But what is that to me? Sometimes this doesn't feel so comforting. Um, lately, I've been uh, caught up in watching uh, the Lord of the Rings, whatever the thing, out on Amazon, right? And uh, there's a scene where a young boy, I think his name is Theo, he loses his, uh, his whole town. And he's looking at a really rough providence, and he's just saying, this is awful. How could this be good? I think I've lost my mother. I've lost my home. Uh, and in the midst of that, Galadriel, the main character, says this. I wrote it down because I don't want to misquote a, an important piece of pop culture. Um, but it's, it's good stuff. Uh, Galadriel opening up in that context says this. There are powers beyond darkness at work in this world. Perhaps on days such as this, days in which your whole community is destroyed and you think everybody's dead. Perhaps on days such as this, we have little choice but to trust to their designs and surrender to our own, and surrender our own. And to that, the little boy says, but my home's gone. Where is the design in that? Galadriel's answer is, I do not yet see it. But there's an implicit faith there, right? I don't see it, but I, I trust, right? And here, of course, and if, you, if you're a fan of it, this is a, a woman with immense wherewithal. I mean, she has moved heaven and earth to achieve her goals, and she has plans, and she's got far more mojo than you or I to accomplish it, but she realizes that at this point she is small, and she's dependent, and she hopes in something outside of her, right? Now, I'm not arguing for the, the great theology of whoever's cooking up uh, some reminiscences on Tolstein's work, um, but... There is that reality of the frustration of living in a sin-cursed world and asking why. Lord, from this perspective of where I'm at, I see no good purpose in this. And that's frustrating, right? We don't know the beginning from the end, but we can know him who does. And that will bring immense comfort. Because if you think that you're going to figure it all out, even if you are gifted with the ability to plan things well and execute tasks well, at some point all of us come to the end of ourselves and realize there are things outside of me. And how am I going to deal with that? Well, Short Catechism 7 is interacting with this theme. Job 14, 1 through 5. Man's days are numbered. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers, so bursts out in all of his glory like a desert flower, and it's amazing. But then no sooner than it just disappears, right? It withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There's not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. So this passage in Job is really laying out the idea that our nature, our humanity, our story is finite, fixed, determined, defined, and defined by God to boot. Proverbs 16, 4. Uh, I think the last time I taught this study, I got confused. I thought it was uh, Proverbs 6, 4. Is that the passage on the bottom of all the, the cups at In-N-Out? right? 
Uh, yeah, this is not that passage. Uh, Proverbs 16:4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. If anybody knows the in and out people, maybe petition to get that one on the bottom of a cup. Um, but this is attesting to the universality of God's sovereignty in terms of control over all things. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Nothing is outside of our God's control. There's no situation where God is going to say, I didn't foresee that one. I didn't know that one. Oh boy. Now this is an awesome truth. The idea that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass and then it will come to pass and nothing else could come to pass. For some traditions in Christianity, they're likely to view these doctrines of foreordination, predestination. They're likely to see it as, uh, I don't know if you ever saw those uh, choose your own adventure books. You open the book and you're reading this great story and then, I don't know, we'll, go, we'll just meld reality here and we'll, we'll take this Lord of the Rings story and like, what does Galadriel say next? If she smacks the little boy, go to page 18, right? Which is bad pastoral counsel, son of course God sovereign, right? Um, go to page 18. If on the other hand, she says, I can see from your perspective the frustration with living in this reality and, you know, hold on. The answer will be clear someday. Go to page 42, right? Those kinds of... Uh, creations of books where there's all kinds of possible outcomes, right? Is that how God works? Does God like foreordain something and but then he gives you different ways in which to do it and he spends his time sort of filling potholes in history and making things work? Is that how it works, right? Is divine foreordination just, you know, this sort of synergistic God playing with you in order to, you know, hopefully get his will to happen? That, that's, that's a thing within some now, the idea here is, well, at the bottom of the day, lot, the end of the day, none of us are too crazy about the idea that we have a God that exists outside of us who defines reality, describes reality, and is the Lord of history. There are so many things in our life, if we had the ability to have, you know, uh, put it in reverse and change it, we would. If we had the ability to uh, change what's going on today or what problems you're dealing with now, you'd push that button. We'd wear the batteries out, as a matter of fact. We have a hard time trusting that we aren't God, and that is a, a long-standing tradition within humanity, right? Say, you'll be as God if you eat this fruit, right? Hmm. Well, I would just suggest that uh, oftentimes some of our traditions want to make excuses for God's sovereignty. But the sooner we can sing, whatever my God ordains is right, the sooner you will find rest. The sooner you'll find rest. Uh, we, in our weakest moments, in our greatest realizations of how weak we are, uh, we realize we don't control everything, that things are frustrated. And if you think that you're just going to try harder, find the right guru, uh, read the right book, follow the right seven steps, and you're going to fix it, eventually you're going to find that you can't, okay? And I would suggest to you that being able to trust in an all-sovereign God who does work things out, even the difficult provinces, uh, providences, uh, that, that will be a freeing reality for you.
Well, remember back when we studied question four, I don't know, a couple studies ago, um, we asked, what is God? And the catechism says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we noted that God is not one of his attributes, like he takes a day of the week and he's like, I'm going to be holiness today, right? I'm going to be justice tomorrow. I'll be love on Wednesday. No. God is all of his attributes all of the time. And so, beloved, I need to take an intermission and a commercial break to talk about Calvinists and sovereignty. If you could somehow get a hypodermic needle and find the being of God and poke that hypodermic needle in the right organ, so to speak. This is blasphemous to speak at such. But if we could somehow <laughs> extract the sovereignty of God and say, I've got it. Beloved, what we have is an idol and not God. God is all of his attributes all of the time. Watch out for us in our tradition when we want to. Now, it's true, guys. We do theology in a public context. We're sharing the faith with people who have different ideas. And when we share the faith with people who are really ashamed of the sovereignty of God, who really want to maximize human freedom outside of the divinely stipulated uh, borders, oftentimes we kind of maybe overdo it on the sovereignty thing, right? Um, watch out for that, that somehow we could imagine that God is only sovereign or God is basically sovereign, right? We're very critical when we hear our evangelical friends say, God is love, God is basically love. Right? Well, we're just as bad when we want to reduce God to sovereignty. Calvinists, of course, have always insisted that God is sovereign, but he's not only sovereign. He's righteous, he's holy, he's love, etc. If we somehow manage to do that, we're going to end up divorcing God from God. Because God is not parts, he's not passions. Okay? God is simple. Uh... Another thing is, is if we could somehow divorce the idea of God's sovereignty from covenant, then we're really in big trouble, okay? Then we'd really be in big trouble. We would end up with something that sounds more like Islam or fate, right? In Islam, Allah is all-powerful. He is sovereign, right? Allah is good, according to the Muslim. But Allah did not send his son, because that's blasphemous in Islam, Allah did not send his son as a sin atoning sacrifice to meet the needs of his people, to redeem and accomplish that for a people. So if somehow we manage to pull sovereignty out of God, we end up with an idol. Watch out for that tendency. God can't be reduced to one of his attributes. The Bible teaches that there is a covenant between the members of the Trinity, often called the covenant of redemption. We'll discuss this more later when we get into further questions, but in it, the Father originates the covenant, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it to us. That covenant of redemption is beautiful, and we'll unpack that a little bit in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. It's almost like when they made Shorter Catechism number seven, they were really interacting with Ephesians one. Um, but there's you know, enormous amounts of stuff that could be unpacked in this passage, but I just wanna look at four things. First, verse five. God the Father has predestined you to be Christ's brother. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We are the children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We've been predestined. And keep in mind, again, sometimes as Reformed people, we get excited that, hey, it's in the text, predestination's a thing. Quit trying to skirt a sovereign God, we tell our friends that don't share uh, you know, a, a reformed view of predestination, election, foreknowledge, etc. cetera. Uh, no, uh, the predestination has a destination, right? There's an objective, there's a goal, the chief end of man, glorify God and enjoy God forever. That, that's talking about the destiny of man. We're talking about a heavenly destination. So we're predestined not only to a destination, but we're also predestined to a relationship. God will be our father. Jesus will become our brother. Never lose sight of that. There's a destiny to predestination. That destiny involves a relationship and a place. Secondly, we're going to see in verse 4 that he's predestined you to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world, before he's even created anything. God has a plan where you will be holy. You will be blameless. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 7, God the Son has redeemed you by his blood. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which you've lavished upon us, right? That is this foreordaining, predestinating objective of God is to incorporate you into his son, to take the blood of his son and cover you with it and find satisfaction in you whereby he is able to call you his son and we call him Abba Father. We receive his very righteousness. Jesus, of course, performs that great transaction and takes our sin. And lastly, we're going to see that God the Holy Spirit seals you for your heavenly inheritance. 
the counsel that Galadriel should give to that young boy as he's in the nasty now and now is what Pastor calls it, that frustrated present evil age, this wacky world that Ecclesiastes lays out where the righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. It's taxi to whatever crazy world. The advice that Galadriel should give is uh, the Holy Spirit has sealed you for this. Your end destination is guaranteed. The third person of the Trinity, of course, secures it and applies it to you. So verse 13 and 14. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who's the guarantee of your inheritance? There's no world that exists where the love of God applied to his believers is not going to come to full fruition. It will not fail. And for us who struggle and look at all of our misgivings, look at the frustratability of a sin-cursed world, all of those unforeseen things that plan though we try and work as we might, are frustrated, the promise is the Spirit seals you for that heavenly inheritance. You will acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now this truth is for your comfort. <laughs> Uh, predestination, foreordination, election is to the comfort of the believer. And when I first became Reformed, I, you know, I grew up Catholic and then became Evangelical and then went into the Reformed camp. And, uh, you know, when I, I had so much opposition by people that I knew and I loved and that taught me the Scripture, uh, that it was frustrating because they just refused to see that the Apostle Paul is very clear. Our God is a foreordaining predestinating, electing, loving God that actually saves people. And I was, uh, you know, in that phase, Mike Horton has probably, I don't know, famously, but Mike Horton has called it the cage phase cap, com, com, uh, Calvinist, cage stage of Calvinism, right? That idea where maybe we should lock you away because maybe you're no good to God or anybody while you're just being annoying, right? Now, I, you know, so I can remember, uh, you know, being a, a young member at a, a Garden Grove Orthodox Presbyterian Church and an old man, uh, George Marston was his name. He was the first generation of graduates from Westminster Seminary in the East. And uh, he heard me being noisy and cage stagey and uh, he came up and put his hand on my shoulder and uh, he says, Dan, I am happy to hear that you are zealous to speak the truth. But that truth must always be spoken in love. And I thought, come on, brother, aren't you supposed to be like on my team here? But uh, through the years, I've always found out that Reverend Marston was right. He was right. Beloved, these are not things intended to help you stump your philosophy professor in college. Uh, these are not things to help you win a theological debate. Although speak the word of truth, we must. These things are for your comfort. Therefore, your comfort. Romans 8, 28 through 39. And, uh, you know, this is a, a reorienting passage for us. Uh, it reorients us to, <laughs> to God's realm, God's view of reality, and encourages us to get plugged into that agenda. Romans 8, 28 through 39. Uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, all, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is, it to, who is, it, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, of course, this passage uh, is what we've often called, uh, you know, the golden chain of salvation. And I'm, I'm sure I drew too many links, but that's okay. Uh, I have an eraser. God doesn't. Um, so uh, there's this thing, right, that uh, we've got predestination. We've got calling. We've got, I don't know, uh, uh, he got justification. We've got, uh, you know, glorification. Uh, and, you know, it's always interesting to me, uh, when I was in a systematics class, I always wondered, you know, where's sanctification? Where's, where's all these other categories we think of? And the short story to that, of course, is Paul and the Bible is not writing a systematic theology. But I would encourage you to, to realize that predestination, calling, and justification, and glorification, these are the things that the catechism would lump together. And probably, at least when it talks about justification, it talks about an act of God. These are the things where this idea that God acts are written large, right? Of course, God is the one who's participating in doing. We call this the idea of monergism, right? Uh, this is the idea that God alone predestines, God alone calls, God alone justifies, and God alone glorifies. In the midst of that journey from, you know, uh, the world, uh, you know, uh, eternity past, you know, where God dwells in inexplicable glory for all eternity, uh, he calls a people to him in time and space history, that created reality of, of time, the created reality of a world. Our world, right? And he's calling us, of course, to his world. And the good news, of course, is that as God calls us to his world, that seventh day rest, that Sabbath rest, uh, take into account that Jesus has done everything that God calls us to do. As we suffer in life, as things don't go well, uh, know that God has never called us to do something that he himself has not done in the person of his son. Maybe we could hedge our bets and say faith. 
that's something Jesus doesn't have. That's an arguable point, but uh, you know, Jesus doesn't have extrospective faith, uh, but he does obey his father. He does appease the wrath of the father. He keeps the law, and right now he sits at the right hand of the father, as the passage has told us, interceding for us. And so I know that there's a lot of uh, common counsel that when we're in our distress, don't use this passage, and it can become trite. But if you can reorient people's thoughts, right? And let's be honest, that illustration of the you know, Lord of the Rings episode that I illustrated for you, that is where we are so often. We're in Theo's position. I lost my home. I lost my mom. It's all a wreck. Where do we get to the point where we're able to, who's the guy who wrote, it is well with my soul? Sorry to put you on the spot, Pam. Who is it? Horatio Spofford right? The account from that story that I understand is he, lost, he was like a businessman and having going back and forth between the UK or something. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to mention that I had talked a similar theme scenario mm-hmm. this morning on the Heidelberg versus what do you understand by God's providence. Right. But it was something I had never really heard of before which I found really helpful. It was called God's meticulous providence. Right. You're stealing my thunder, bro. But this is, no, this is good. And I was actually hoping to run out of time and not get into it. But (laughs) hold hold my feet to the fire on that. Um, Hold my feet. I wasn't going to use the the meticulous providence. Um, Is that what you said, meticulous providence? Yeah. Um, I forgot totally where I was at. Oh. He loses his entire family, I think. Maybe a, a sibling or a child here or there existed. But right after that, after losing all of that, he sits down at some point. Now, I'm sure it probably wasn't instant, but he sat down and wrote, it is well with my soul. Earthly speaking, when we look at that situation, we think, how can you write that? How can you write that? He has plugged into this realm, right? He knows that at the end of the day, God will work all things out for his glory. In the words of Benjamin Warfield, I'm sure Horatio Spafford was a catechism boy, right? He got the idea that God will work this out, right? And also it gives him the rest of knowing, I don't have to figure this all out, right? Trying to figure out difficult providences in life will eat your lunch, okay? It'll eat your lunch, and that's not to say that we shouldn't be faithful with our time. It's not to say that we shouldn't vote, we shouldn't participate in culture, anything like that. But at the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day, we need to rejoice in the fact that we have a God who works out all his holy will. Now, as Mark led us to, this biblical truth always produces questions. What about my free will? If we're talking about a God that's focused on his will, his glory, what about my free? And I even get the idea that you're telling me it's for my good. Great. Yeah, uh, it doesn't feel that way oftentimes we want to say, right? Uh, well, what about my free will? Does God make me do things that I don't want to? Can't I just blame God for my wickedness? Well, I was just born this way, right? I'm not responsible for this. I'm going to take the responsibility car and I'm going to park it in God's garage because that's where it belongs. It's your fault, God. 
that's often where we want to go, and that certainly people that are critical of Christianity want to go with. We need to be careful here. We've seen that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and he does control all things. We also know from experience that we plan to do what we want to do, right? Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. When you got dressed this morning, I don't believe any of us had this really detailed, like metaphysical conversation with the divine arguing about what shorts or pants or shirt you would wear. No, I like blue. I chose a blue shirt. It was clean. It was the cleanest shirt on the rack. Okay. There we go. That's all there was to it. It was within my ability to choose, and I did what I wanted. So yes, do we have free will? Absolutely. We exercise it every day. However, that free will that we have, going back to that passage that we mentioned earlier, is our nature is prescribed by God, right? We can't choose to do that which we aren't able to do. As much as I might like to fly home this afternoon with wings that I ain't got, I probably could use a few, lose a few pounds and might aid in that endeavor, but I'm not going to fly. I'm not a bird. It's outside of my nature, right? Um, certainly, we choose to do what we want to do. God is not injecting into us a desire, some foreign thing. We act in accordance with our nature. The Bible, however, also teaches that we're responsible for our choices and that our human actions within a created reality whereby we're given a law and it explains how behavior ought to go, we see there's correlations between actions and outcomes and we're responsible for those actions. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are paradoxical for sure, but true. Another possible question that pops up that Mark alluded to, if God planned everything, if his providence is meticulous, did he plan sin? Absolutely. Let's get this out of the way. The biggest sin I can conceive of is right here in Acts 2.23. Early apostolic preaching, the apostles get it right out of the gate. They say this, uh, this is Peter. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right? We see right there, there is God's sovereignty in sending the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to suffer as a sin atoning sacrifice according to his plan. When we talk about injustice, what is more unjust than the absolutely innocent suffering for the wicked? And that's what we see in Jesus. The greatest injustice conceivable is executed upon Christ. And that's according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. And Peter is doubling down. Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But Peter also says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's responsibility there. They're both there. Now, what's... Yeah, we're going to get moving. Um, how about this one? Well, if sin exists, sin is bad, God even foreordains sin, does God make it? Does God go and make up ingredients and bake up a cake of sin for us to participate in it? Well, certainly not. Ecclesiastes 7.29, Solomon, in all of his wisdom commenting on human nature, says this, See, this alone I've found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, beloved, as we close, uh, you know, it, it's election season again. And as Americans, we have a high privilege to 
participate by popular sovereignty, the will of the people, the people together, the, the sovereign will of the people, that is the right to the rule is baked into the cake of the people, and we get to choose that which we want for what we think is good policies wherever we go with that. And good luck on that. Pray for whoever wins. We want to evaluate our candidates and our policies. We want to evaluate whether they're fair. And this is very, very useful in the kingdom of man because we're comparing like beings. We're comparing candidate to candidate, neighbor to neighbor. But beloved, I submit to you that this is a useless category when examining God because God is not a man that he should lie. Not to imply politicians do that, but they're people. And we're liars. This is possible, and it's useful for comparing like beings, but it's a useless category for comparing the creator to his creation. It is a plan for his glory and our good. So, beloved, love God and your neighbor and share with them God's comfort and love that they might hide in the Savior. Uh, if you want to find rest in the midst of turmoil, find your rest in a God who does everything according to his will, but also for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that uh, in the difficulties of life that we all experience in greater or lesser degrees, with greater or lesser frequency, and obviously we're frustrated that we have to endure any of that, but we find an answer that you have a good purpose for it, and that, Father, we don't have to beat ourselves up and try to figure out the how, 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 and the why. Uh, it's a wacky world. We need to love our neighbor. We need to love you. And we need to be gracious to others. Uh, bless us as we navigate this reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.